All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What's going on? Today is a very exciting show, actually. Tony Gilroy is here, and um, if you don't know Tony Gilroy, he's the writer of the Jason Bourne movies. He wrote the Star Wars movie Rogue One, and he's the showrunner on the spinoff show Andor, but he's also the writer and director of Michael Clayton, one of the greatest movies of all time, and I was way ahead of the curve on this, way ahead. Granted, it was nominated for a couple Oscars. It wasn't like it was unrecognized. But I have been carrying the Michael Clayton banner long before Joe Mandy did his funny meme. People are fucking incomprehensible. Yes. Yes, Sydney. Anyway, I've been talking about Michael Clayton for years on this show. Years. And now I'm going to talk to the guy who made it, who wrote it, who pushed it through. The hole into our heads. Yeah. Good talk. Look, I got to do this at the beginning because it's a good point. I got to do this at the beginning because some people like don't listen all the way through. But I, I just want to say that I will be in Livermore, California at the Bankhead Theater this Thursday, October 6th and Carmel by the Sea. Not Carmel, but that's nice thing to have. Carmel by the Sea. Carmel anytime. I'd be eating caramel all day long if I could, if it wouldn't give me diabetes and make me fat. Carmel by the Sea, California, at the Sunset Center this Friday, October 7th. Uh, I have other dates. Bloomsbury Theater in London. I'll be doing a live WTF with David Badil on Wednesday, October 19th. Tickets are on sale for that now, wtfpod.com slash tour. So I was in Canada... For the Toronto Just for Laughs Festival, always a pleasure to be in Canada, and I meet it. There's just like, whatever it is up there, relaxing, the people, I like the people, it's just, there's a ceiling to the energy. I said that on stage, I didn't, I was trying to focus in, hone in on what it was. There's a ceiling to the energy, a cap. It's not bad. It sounds like it may be bad or maybe a problem, but you know, you don't walk around Canada going like, what the fuck is up with that guy? What do we, should we, what is up with that guy? Dude, let's just go another way. Doesn't happen there. Again, maybe I'm romanticizing it. But look, here's the deal. So I get up there. I'm doing two shows, Friday night and Saturday night. And I'm working with the fucking, the best. I'm working with the best comedian in the country. We're not working together. We're on this, we're, we're, we're not a double bill even. We're just in the same venue. You know, I'm working with Maria Bamford, who I haven't seen in years, who I love. But Jesus Christ. You watch Maria Bamford do comedy and it's almost like, why, why do it? She's doing it. So it's like, she's it. She's above and beyond any stand-up working. She is the best. And I don't understand why everyone just doesn't see that. It's not, you can't, you can't put her in a box. You can't compartmentalize it. You can't say it's whatever. It doesn't matter. There was no one better on all levels than Maria Bamford. And she's just the best stand-up we've got working. And I have felt that way for years. What a pleasure to watch her. Great laughs, deep, moving. And just, I I love hanging out with her. It it, it just, you know, she's a a rare, authentic, uh, inspired artist in the field that I work in, who I love to watch. Doesn't happen too often. It is just... Great. And the shows up there that I had were a great time. 
trying to get the hour down to uh, to where it needs to be, trim it up. But a couple of interesting things happened with other celebrities while I was um, on the way to Canada, oddly. Now, pow, I just shit my pants. Just coffee.coop. Go get yourself a bag. We get a little, little back end on that. They were one of our first sponsors. So I'm in the lounge heading to Canada on uh, Thursday in the Air Canada Lounge at LAX. Not great, but you can, you know, get your own food now. So there's a buffet there and I'm getting whatever because I'm like, I'm on, I'm, I'm eating. I doesn't, I don't know what I'm doing. It's not good. But I'm, I'm putting food on a plate and I look over at the coffee machine. There's an old man there that I kind of recognize. And I'm like, could that be? And I'm like, who is that? And I'm like, holy shit. It's Stuart Copeland from the police. Now, look, honestly, I'm not a huge police fan. There's police songs that are unavoidable, that are great. There's whole police albums that are great. But the, 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 the sort of disposition of all of them is uniquely annoying. Yeah, that was always what I got off them. But nonetheless, great drummer. Like all the police stuff and Rumblefish, the soundtrack of Rumblefish, that's where I kind of stop with his soundtracks and anything he's ever done. I, I'm not, I don't keep up, but that thing is great. And he's a great drummer, no doubt. Don't know anything about him. Didn't say hi, didn't ask for a selfie. No big fan. No, I really enjoyed the Rumblefish soundtrack. I thought that would sound dismissive. So I just sat and looked at him and watched him drink coffee with his face. And then in the lounge, a woman comes over, says something to him. He gets up, walks over to another guy who, who's kind of uh, hidden by a pole-ish thing. But it's a guy with a guitar case, but he's, you know, he's kind of short, wearing dark clothes. He's got a bucket hat on. He's wearing sunglasses and a mask. And he's got kind of a man bun coming out of the back of the bucket hat. And I don't know. I can't make out who it is. But Copeland hugs him. They do selfies with masks on. And I'm like, who the fuck is that? He's got a guitar with him. He's got, and I'm thinking maybe just a studio guy. I don't know. So I get on the plane. Stuart left the lounge. I think he was going somewhere else. But I get, I'm waiting to get on the plane with the other guy, and I'm looking at him. I'm right next to him, and I'm like, "Holy fuck! It's Getty Lee from Rush. That's who it is. It's Getty Lee." And awkward again. Uh, not a huge Rush fan. Know a lot of their work. Seen them in concert. Have tremendous respect for them as artists and as people because of the documentary. I used to be a little dismissive, a little condescending about prog rock in general, but since I've been kind of getting into Crimson lately uh, and, and Rush is Rush. I don't own any Rush records. I own a lot of Genesis records that I don't need because I can't stand it. I own some Yes records. I tried. Crimson, I'm, I'm the Blue Crimson, I'm kind of in. But Rush, I know the shit. So... We get on the plane and I'm like, holy shit, that's Getty Lee because they took him on first and I'm realizing it is him and he's sitting down and then when I walk on the plane, there are flight attendants trying to strap his base into a first class seat and it's tricky and it's kind of holding up things. So he's up there in first class with the woman who he's traveling with. I don't know who that is. And his base is also traveling in first class once they got it buckled in. Now, again, I'm getting off the... Uh, I'm getting off of the, the plane and I'm right behind Getty Lee. And I, I don't ask for a selfie. I don't say big fan because I'm not, I wasn't, I'm not a huge fan, but look, I respect the guy and I know the, a lot of the songs. Today's Tom Sawyer. 
I feel like I've done this before. But I didn't want to say anything, so I took a picture of the back of his head. I took a picture of the back of Giddy Lee's head. And I wrestled with it for like days. Like, you know, should I post this? Is this intrusive? Is this wrong? How would I feel if someone did it to me? And I chose to do it. <laughs> you know, it took a couple of days and I posted on Instagram and I wrote, I thought long and hard about posting this. I wouldn't ask for a selfie because I don't do that. And it would have been disingenuous. I was on a plane. I've known this man's work for most of my adult life. I'm not a huge fan, but I respect the guy. The face on the front of this head has looked out at hundreds of thousands of fans and performed his original music with his band for decades. A true artist, a rock star. This is the back of Getty Lee's head. His bass had its own seat in first class. Hashtag Canada. Hashtag Rush. Hashtag 2112. And Getty Lee got back to me. Oh, dude, kind words. I kind of wondered if that was you behind the mask as we scampered off the plane. Fan of your work. So now I feel like kind of a dick, right? Because I said not a huge fan, but I'm not a huge fan. But I like, I, it's Getty Lee. All right, okay. I was snarky and now I, I, got, I got trumped by niceness. I, we were running off the plane together and he went the wrong way and I followed him until I realized it was the right way and he followed me. But I don't know. He's going to cop to that. So I said, hey, man, this is in response to him saying what he said. I worked for the caterer at your show in Albuquerque, New Mexico, probably 1978, 79, and drove all the way to my boss's house to get Alex a fan for his dressing room. I was pissed, but great show. Sorry I didn't say hi, though I did follow you the wrong way for a minute. That's what I wrote. And that happened. Like, Alex needed a fan, and my boss, Eddie Waxman, rest in peace, asshole, uh... Yeah, made me drive a half hour to get the fan. Getty, in response to that, said, seriously, what a story. On Alex's behalf, thanks. Hope we meet up again sometime. <laughs> oh, I think so much of my resentment of that band was tied into that. Just as I just have this vision in my head of me kind of exasperated, you know, walking into this room where Alex is sitting there with his foot on one of those classical guitar wooden uh, uh, things that you put your foot on, like just raises your foot. And he's got a classical guitar and he's just sitting there all affected like, and, I, and I'm like, I got your fan, man. And I, I just felt that they were, I just felt, yeah, whatever. I was like, a, what, what did I expect for him to be like, oh my God, you're amazing. You're like a genius. Thank you for the fan. I was in high school and I just copped an attitude. And uh, me and uh, Getty just put it to rest. We put that shit to rest and I appreciate it. All right. So look, you guys, Tony Gilroy, uh, the Star Wars series Andor is streaming now on Disney Plus. Tony is the creator and showrunner. And uh, also he, he wrote and directed Michael Clayton. I'm going to talk to him right now. It's going to happen now. Um, so I would like to conduct this interview as if Michael Clayton is being released next week. <laughs> <laughs> okay, man, let's go for it. 
you're in luck because I haven't. I, I didn't. I didn't see it for I don't know. Oh my god! Man, a dozen years, and then uh, about a month ago, Warner Brothers is doing yeah. some some glad hand, you know, corporate centenary thing, and yeah. they want to honor it. So I I had to go do an interview about it. And yeah, I went back. My wife went. I went back and watched it. So I just I just seen it recently for yeah. the first time in a long time. Well, I, it's it today is it's like this month, fifteen years ago. This month it was released. Wow. Isn't that wild? Yeah. I, I mean, I watch it constantly. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm obsessed, but I've been talking about Michael Clayton for about a decade. I've heard you talk about it. <laughs> and people have, that's how, I, that's kind of my entree to the show. People say, oh my God, go on, you know, minute minute nine of Nicole Kidman. Check that out. You know? But just like, I refer to it to everybody. I reckon, like, it, 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 and now what's folded into it now with my recommendations is The Verdict. I do the, I do Michael Clayton and The Verdict. Man, as I, movies people should see. Man, to be married to the verdict, it, it, it the verdict is just it's just so perfect. It's right? It's just there's movies like that, and they just like there's not every time you watch it, you just how did they get this? How did it happen? It's so perfect. That long shot where where you know Jack Warden clearly tells him that Charlotte Rampling was doing him wrong, and you just see Newman like <laughs> just slump. It's just oh uh, my god! No, it's um, it's beyond elegant. Yep. Because like it seems like you know with Michael Clayton, I mean my argument or my my uh, excitement is always around like you know where are these movies now, and and the fact is you know just grown up sort of you know it, with depth you know it's not even a thriller but just a, a, a you know a movie that deals with real characters in in a you know in a dark way like a grown up movie. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think it's out there. I think people are doing all this. I think, but do they make it to the movies? Well, no. I mean, that's that's not going to be happening, right? That won't be happening. No. I, I mean, it, it'll be diminishing. I don't know. I mean, even even absent COVID, I, I'm not sure that was going to continue. Really? I mean, the audience, the economics of releasing movies, and the economics yeah. of the way it works, yeah. and the ease of watching it, and the size of the screen at home. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's such a cliche. You have yeah. a big screen at home, but it's that's a real thing. Why so, go out? <laughs> I guess so. Why yeah. go out for? Why go out unless there's a reason? Well, there's always that defense of like, don't you want to be part of a, a bunch of people and the excitement and and some people are like, nah. Yeah, I think the, I don't think that's a question you want to ask twice. Yeah, but but that seemed to be their defense for a while. Yeah, as so people as people got shittier. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are getting shittier. Go out with as the as the trend yeah. for shittiness yeah, yeah, yeah. in people increases. Do you want to go out more? You want to hang out more yeah. with them. Yeah. Probably not. So that movie though, uh and the verdict, I mean it, it seems that that movie seems to come from that that kind of that legacy of 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 thought around films around that type of main character uh, a kind of 70s sensibility to it yeah i mean you know i'm always fascinated by the the hero that goes by the exit i mean what's more what's better than that you <laughs> know i mean no i mean at one point <laughs> what was the uh i remember when we when we screened warner when we screened at warner brothers yeah. cuz they didn't really they didn't love us. The movie wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, How did the opportunity come about? Oh, the opportunity on Clayton came about. I was. Uh, I worked for Castle Rock. For, yeah. I was sort of house boy for a bunch of different companies. At one point, I started at Interscope, and I was the, you know, I was the kid writer there. And then I went to Castle Rock. And what I, was it, your primary job though? Was it actually? Right. Writer. I was a screenwriter. No, I know. But were you mostly writing original scripts, yeah. or were you fixing things? 
No, most most at that point, mostly writing. I mean, okay. my first film was made at Interscope, a skating movie, the, the hockey cutting, movie, cutting edge. Yeah, yeah, people like that movie. Oh my god, they still do. And, yeah. Uh, anyway, so I moved along, and and uh, at Castle Rock, I had uh, did Dolores Claiborne there, and uh, oh yeah, I did this movie, one. Extreme Measures, for them, and, yeah. and worked on some other things, and and uh, I, my stock was really high there, and and I went in, and and uh, they were very brave. It was a very, it was the last sort of, it was a very benevolent brave company and i went in one day and i said look i said i want to do a movie yeah about a fixer in a law firm somebody will die it'll have a movie star part i want to direct it that's all i got and they paid me handsomely to do that martin schaefer there they 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 really bet on me and believed believed in me and i um uh, I started working. I also got really busy. Then Born came along. A whole bunch of things came along, and yeah. and and, uh, and it got stalled. And by the time I came back and started to work on it, their their fortunes were not. They weren't in the position to swing to gamble as much. And they were so generous and amazing. When I did finally put it together, they were like, "Go with God. Yeah, keep our names on it. Help yeah. us out. We're yeah. not going to hold you up. We're not going to put a turnaround fee on it." Everybody was. I had a lot of benevolence on that. Yeah, from from Castle Rock, and then. And then uh, I had I had Steven Soderbergh at one point, and I had Sidney Pollack at the other time. It was sort of a relay race of producers trying to help me, and they didn't get along. Yeah. They didn't like each other very much. How great is Pollack? See, that's the kind of movie it reminded me of, the ones that he did later, you know, like yeah. the type of movies he made, like, uh, what was it, uh, Forbidden Hearts? What was the one with the where the, the, the couple dies in the plane crash? Oh, yeah, with... Um, that was crazy, with Harrison Ford yeah. and the English woman. And, yeah, and, 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 Kristen's, you know, yeah. Kristen's yeah. Tom, yeah. Like, it's, it, it's in that vein. Absolutely. A film. But anyway, I had a bunch of yeah. a bunch of people and no money. Yeah. You know, and then, so a lot of people helped me get it made. So by the time it got made, um, you know, it was once I got George. It's a long story how I get, get George. I, I ran around for six years trying to get that movie made. Really? Nobody wanted to make it. So, I wanted to make it. I mean, I had an $11 million version of it with Alec Baldwin and uh, and Ben Kingsley that I wanted to do. And I oh, couldn't, my God. I couldn't get $11 million to do that. Instead of instead Previous. of Clooney and uh, and yeah, this uh, is Wilkinson, long before that. yeah, no, it would have been yeah, it would have been a terrible movie. <laughs> no, oh, dude, no, 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 no. Alec was uh, Alec at that point was like nowhere, and like I ran around for a year going like, man, this guy's a check waiting to be cashed. Yeah. And and what a great thing! But and, I always think like if you, when some people mention that like how because my relationship with Michael Clayton is George Clooney, mm-hmm. so now I got to think of you no, know, no, of Baldwin, right? Very because like, Clooney plays it so vulnerable somehow. You, well, you know, Alec with, really was Alec was really down on his luck at that point. He, he was, yeah, man. He was really man after the cooler, and he was. Oh, yeah. People forget he had his, his renaissance was after. I was right about him, and yeah. But anyway, I ran around all kinds of okay. things. Denzel Washington, we tried to. I mean, all kinds of people. I ran around in the Clayton part. Yeah, mm. yeah. But I couldn't get the movie made for six years, and then six. I finally changed agencies and and, a, and had a meeting with George. And but I you were committed it. to it. Obviously. I would have wanted to do it. Yeah, I wanted. To, I needed to do it. So, so many things happened in the interim. I'm, how many? So, you're writing all these Bourne movies, right? Yeah. And but what what drives you to do like this? Why that guy? Why Clayton? Why was that the guy? You know, your first movie you're going to direct and this story. Why that story? Uh it was. It was very very clean. It was super doable. Yeah. And yet it had enough. Uh, it had enough elements of visual spectacularity that I could see myself yeah. you know I knew I knew 
there were things I could bring to it visually, but I knew it was manageable. I was an, I, I was 50 years old by the time I directed. I never directed. So I was a, by that point, I had gone to school on, you know, 20 directors I'd worked with. I'd been on all kinds of movies. And a lot of directors, you know, never work with other directors. They never see anybody else work. So they only yeah. know their thing. Right. Writers and actors and sometimes editors, you know, you worked with a lot of directors. I, I got to catalog shop from directors my whole life. Oh, I'll, don't ever do that. That's a great idea. Like who, don't ever... who had the most impact? Like in oh, your man, mind? I don't want to. I mean, oh, well, I learned the most from Taylor. I did three movies shoulder to shoulder with Taylor Hackett. Yeah. So I learned all about how to, I mean, I, what I didn't learn from him. But there's things that Taylor does that I don't like, that I'm yeah. <laughs> not my, my way. And other things, you, you sort of cherry... The one thing I knew is I could not make a first movie. You can't make a, f a first movie at 50. You got to make your like sixth movie at 50. <laughs> right, right. Pressure's and, on. Yeah, so I was pretty serious about it. But that character is so like, he's like uh, like this perfectly flawed guy for, you know, like it was just right from the beginning. Like perfectly flawed. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the balance, right? You know, to keep a flawed character uh, uh, human enough to have empathy for him, right? I mean, even all, it seemed like all of them. Uh, I have empathy for all. I don't, I can't, I, I think that's, I think that's, that's the universal truth is empathy for all the characters. There isn't one of them I don't. Yeah. I mean, I got 200 characters in this thing now. I love, I mean, every single one of them and their point of view makes sense to me, you know? You in gotta, the, in the, you in gotta the, write that way. You have to write that way. In the Star Wars thing? Yeah, but you have to write that way. So, you know, and George's character yeah. was very, when we screened the movie uh, at Warner Brothers, one, uh, Dan Feldman, I think, was the guy who was really champion at that point. He was a dis distribution guy because a lot of people there didn't really get it. And they were like, what are we doing with this thing and this George movie? What is it? And Dan Feldman was really overwhelmed. And I go, Dan, who's the movie for? And he goes, it's for men that know they're going to die. <laughs> that's... That's, I thought, well, that's, that's, that's a, a big, place to start. Yeah. But it's also, that's a pretty big demographic. Yeah. Well, yeah, but he, that for like when when you say that, like I I don't think of old men till later. Like it seemed to no, be a, a, a sense no, of a sensitivity to it. Yeah, you have dark to, dudes. Yeah, you have to know you're gonna die. Right, and structurally that movie because I was just talking about this with my producer. Like, what did you always think to to backload it? Like, did you always think like when you wrote the movie in the sense that you open sort of in in the middle, right? And then you you fill in the story after. What do you mean by always? I mean, no, I worked no, no, on that. No, I worked not, on the script. Not I mean, always. I'm just you saying mean, when that, I worked on it. Like right. No, right. it was written that way. You never you never thought of starting it at, at the beginning of the problem. I tortured myself with that script yeah. for several years. I there's I probably wrote seven eight hundred pages of script for that thing. There were whole other films. There was a film about the sun and the fantasy fiction. There was a there was a version of the film where uh, the Clayton character was trying to extricate a uh, a huge corporate client from a. Uh, a mistress that wouldn't move out of an apartment. There was all. I mean, I had all. I had. I had more shit than I could possibly deal with, and uh, it. It really. It was. A, it was. Terrifying. It was literally. Terrifying. I'd be afraid to go to work, and I. I literally had like an epic, almost writer breakdown one day. It was like a Monday, and I was like, I can't get out of bed. I can't go to work. I can't think about this anymore. I'm too afraid. I can't write anymore. And I go, you have been on this thing on and off for like three years. And you don't know how many, you don't know the time frame. Like, I didn't, like, does it take place over three months? I like the fact that I had worked on it that long and yeah. didn't answer that. And I said, 
if you do not know by Wednesday how many days this thing is or how long it is, then you yeah. have to throw it away and start over again. And like by Wednesday, I was like, oh my God, it's only over four days or five, I don't know how many yeah. days. It's, it's like five days. Yeah. And like, holy shit. And like, <laughs> I think two weeks later, I wrote this, the script was done because I just had everything there already. But because- that's, it's so, It was such a game. Yeah. So stupid. But with that yourself, was always that. With yourself. Yeah, you know, the games you play with yeah. yourself, yeah. But because you did all that, 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 that tangential work, you definitely knew these people, right? Oh, I had all kinds of, there's a, there's a you know, it's, 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 it's very akin to, to painting in a way where, yeah. you're, you know, you're painting layers and layers and layers and scraping stuff off yeah. and what's underneath. And, and things take on an impasto and they take on a, they take on a, um, you know, a richness that you can't get there from the beginning. It, it, it's not the, uh, it's, it, it, I've worked that way a couple times. It's it, the mistake you make is when you try to when you try to dictate the next project with the process that worked on the one before. Every single one of them has its own way it wants to be birthed and its own way it wants to be massaged and the own its own tempo of coming about. And when you try to enforce your previous or some previous creative yeah. method on it, yeah. you fuck up. Disastrously. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, the, I mean, the well, you wrote that other law movie, which was the Devil movie. You know, well, there you go. Well, yeah. that, I like that movie. I do too because I like uh, Devil stuff. <laughs> oh man, that's that movie's and that's just Devil's that was, Advocate is great. It's just an opera. It's fucking great. I yeah. love that movie. Is that how you approached it? You like I'm yeah, writing an I mean, opera. Well, it was just, I mean, Dad Taylor wanted to do that movie, and he sent me that script. I said, man, I am absolutely not doing it. It was a terrible script. I'd been bouncing around Warner Brothers forever. A lot yeah. of people worked on it. Yeah. And you could see how it would be, you know, you could see all the reasons how and why it would be bad. How even good writers would sure get. Yeah, because it's like, it's easy yeah. to make it silly. Yeah, and I was just like, Taylor, man, go look at Rosemary's Baby and pick another project. Yeah. We're never going to do anything as good as that. We're never going to get there. And he just kept at me, and I, and I, um, what did I do? I, I finally, I, I said, look, I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come to LA yeah. for one week Yeah. I'm gonna, and put me in a hotel and we'll work for a week. But at the end of the week, if I don't have it and I don't want to do it, then I can leave and we can still be friends. Right? <laughs> That's right? the no, deal? Yeah. I'll work my ass off for a week. And in that week, um, I came with the idea, what well, the idea that, that there was, oh my God, it was, I said, how do I make it real for me? Because I made a biological. I said, the "Oh my mother, God, is right? the, the, no, the, but the, but he's the father. Right, it's in you." Right, and it's right. like I thought, "Wow!" And I really like, in a Nietzschean way, I, there's all these things I want to do. Yeah, I want to do all these things that I'm not allowed to do because every society and morality. Sure. But I have them in me. I yeah. want to. I want to fuck that, and yeah, I want to yeah, eat that, and yeah. I want to do this. Yeah. And, my, and they, they're in there. Yeah, sure. Said, well, that's kind of that's in me. So yeah. the moment I could make it uh, biological. I could connect to it, and that was kind of the key. And we said, "What if he's the father?" And like that. So you created the character, that poor mother, the mother who yeah, was there. The, yeah, I made it. I made it. I made it genetic. Trip. Yeah, yeah, I made it genetic. I did all that stuff. Yeah, and then it was. Then after that, uh, then it was just a gas to write those. Um, you know, all those arias. Everybody thinks that those. You know, oh, the long monologues. Yeah. Are, those are the easiest things to write. You know, I could sort of. It was a little bit scary. You know, scary. You can write for Satan by the yard. It was. Sure. They were. It was very easy for me to write those. Yeah, you know. Well, yeah, but what's fun? It's a release. Yeah, you can really. Yeah, and you know, you know, he's an abs he's an absentee landlord, right? Yeah, All and shit. Yeah, and and also the uh, like that, like that mother, the woman who played the mother in Devil's Judith Abbey. Ivy, Judith, Judith Ivy, right? I mean that that grounded it so heavy in a kind of like it, she played that so fucking well. 
Yeah. You know, where that scene in the elevator where it's just like, oh my God. Oh yeah, when he's going up with the girls. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. <sighs> no, it's, um, man, what a dizzy film. I mean, the last 18 minutes of that, uh, I mean, they, we could, I could go on and on. Yeah. There's so many stories from that show because it was such a dizzy show. But we ended up shooting in um, in L.A. We, we moved out to L.A. and we had this big soundstage out in some weird industrial Vernon. Yeah. Out in Vernon. Right. And I'm out in Vernon with, with, with Al, yeah. Taylor, Charlize, <laughs> and Keanu, and a gigantic thing. And it's all of a sudden like we're doing a play. It's the closest thing I've ever had to the experience of what it must be like to be in the theater. Yeah. So let me have a theater. And we're going to create this whole end thing. And Taylor's a maximalist, and Al is a, you know, just yeah. uh, he'll eat anything that comes his way. And he just <laughs> wants more and more and more. Yeah. And that, I sitting there watching that last insane 20 yeah. minutes, you know, when he sings It Happened in Monterey, and we're like, it's just, <laughs> yeah. I can't believe that, like, you know, it's a big budget Warner Brothers movie, and that happened. Yeah. So it's, 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 it feels very, um, and oh my God, and the Trump shit. Yeah. Was he in there? Fuck, man, it's his apartment. Really? The, the killer real estate dude, the killer real estate molester, It we shot in his apartment, in Trump's apartment. We needed the ugliest, most garish, horrifying real estate developer apartment you could possibly have, and Trump threw his apartment at us. And, uh, that's right. That was, uh, and so we, we, we didn't have to do, if you look at the movie, that's his fucking shitbag apartment with all the Versailles guilt and then the 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 high-rise windows it's just it's so perfect and he came by set every day he because he was living there he'd come by the set and really poker oh yeah poke around was what was your impression of him at that time i mean like, obviously the apartment's the apartment but was he was he... just look he was a clown he <laughs> was a clown in new york i i grew up i've been in new york since 1979 i mean i'm with him i've I sat at a table in the China Club with he and Bo Deedle. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, Deedle, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've been around yeah. him. Yeah, just a fucking clown, just a you know, just that clown, grifter, the, uh, grifter clown. Yeah, yeah, kind of loser outsider. Yeah, a pretend rich guy because yeah. you know if you live in New York and you know I've been there all this time and your kids go to school and you're really around titans. Sure. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some really big, yeah, yeah. There's some really big arterial, serious power and money. Yeah, he was not any part of that. And every and they just looked at him like, look oh at this my guy. God, he was yeah. a he was lint. Yeah, and uh, but so you had to deal with him on Devil's Advocate. We would so, come by. He would come by on the way to on the way down to the office or yeah, whatever. You know, yeah. peek by and try to see Charlize or oh, whatever really? the thing like he was trying to do. <laughs> but we were just everybody's laughing at him. But you laughing to, at his apartment. Yeah, it's so funny that he was part of the Devil movie. Of course he was. Al D'Amato wanted. To, we had a party. Yeah, we had a party in that movie, where the Satan throws a party. Yeah, and so I said, Taylor, I guess, we're gonna get all these people. We get all these people. We're gonna get all these New York people. I go, they're not gonna show up at the thing. They're gonna <laughs> see it's the script. It's like that Satan's party. He goes, he goes, no, 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 no. They all fucking show up. Al D'Amato is there. I go, really? They're they. The power of, well, of well, but, the power of attention was greater than the yeah. But now you know they were they're all fucking craven, and there was no integrity to any of it. And if they didn't have you know it was someone, a documentary. Yeah, if they didn't have somebody <laughs> advising them, they'll fucking do anything. These guys for a nickel. Yeah, they'll go to a shopping center opening in hell. They give a fuck. Yeah, I well that's a that's fucking amazing <laughs> that that was Trump's apartment. Craig no, T. Go, Nelson is such an intense fucker guy. He's I mean, a, really good. I. Oof. And he was so good in the part, man. He's so good in the part. And he also plays a part like that. And Do you remember him in Silkwood? Oh, my God. Holy shit. That's Doctoring the, the, the x-rays? Yeah. Whoa. And he started out as a comic. Really? Yeah. Stand-up. Yeah. 
He wow, was in, he I would have like, liked to seen that. He was like in a team. He was way back in the day. Well, like a, I could see him as a store. Smothers brother almost. Yeah, I mean, I just remember there being a picture of him in Mitzi Shore's office at the comedy store, and I'm like, he was a comic. I don't think it was for very long, but he was definitely there. He he's was very, definitely... he's very, he, he's very, uh, he's very funny. Yeah, is he? Yeah, and a dry, that really dry. Yeah. So you grew up in New York the whole time? No, I uh, I was born in New York, and uh, my father was did exactly what I do. My father uh, was a writer, and then he he went to L.A. with live TV, and then he went to L.A. and he became a Hollywood writer for. So we lived out here until I was about five or six, and then he, and then there was a strike, and he, he was a playwright. Wanted to be a playwright. He was a playwright. Yeah, and then and he had a big play, and he moved back to New York and was a hit. And all of a sudden, he was doing what he wanted to do. And so we moved back east. And I grew up in a, I grew up about an hour and a half north of New York City oh. in a very uh, in a kind of unusual place at that time. So what place? Uh, uh, it's Washingtonville, New York. Huh. It's where Michael Clayton. It's uh, up there when Clyde, when Michael Clayton goes back to his uh, to his brother, the cop's house. Yeah. That is that house is two hundred yards from the bedroom that I grew up in. That those houses were all the uh, uh, my whole neighborhood uh, was uh, the sons and daughters of cops and firemen. I just got that wave of crisp air. You know the fall in up in like up in that area. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so fucking nice. They were yeah. all cops and uh, and firemen. You said. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, it was a very unusual community. Yeah, it was. Um, it was a little sleepy town. Could have shot it as a southern town. You could have shot it. You yeah. And, and, you know, Civil War Monument, Moffat Library, the whole thing. Little tiny little town. It had, then these two extremely eccentric things happened. That Stewart Air Force Base was there, which is Stewart Airport. Yeah. That was a strategic air command base. Yeah. So those kids were all the, you know, the sons and daughters of, the, you know, a pilot or an yeah. engineer. And the, the mother was the cutest girl in a southern town who could get out. So they were very glamorous. Yeah. Germany, Okinawa, whatever they yeah. rolled for a thing. The base, yeah. And then you had Washingtonville, which was this little farm town that was thirty percent black uh-huh. from before the Civil War, like like Re- conservative black, like Baptist churches, and really, really conservative. Huh. And then <laughs> they passed a law for Robert Moses. New York City cops and firemen could live sixty miles outside of those city limits. They used to have, have to live in the boroughs. But didn't they do Staten Island mostly? No, I but mean, they no, but they, they, they used to be that oh, they had always to have to there. live in the boroughs. Right, right. Then then they opened up, so 60 miles from Columbus Circle. Yeah. Uh, this place was like 58 miles within, and a guy named Tex Worley yeah. got a cop and a fireman and made them real estate agents and built around my father's big freaking house that he had bought to hide out. Yeah. This gigantic community, and it's all New York City cops and firemen. So you have it's New York surrounded. City cops and firemen yeah. in this massive new thing. Yeah. You have Stewart Air Force Base over here, and you have this little sleepy southern town, and you have drugs, Vietnam, race. You have everything, Clyde, and absolutely no control. It was utter. My my, Those years are absolute chaos. My How age. old were you? Well, I mean, I was by the... Uh, I mean, I'm a last year lottery ticket. I'm 66, so I graduate. Yeah, so this was the late this was the late 60s and 70s. It was absolutely out of control. Heroin comes to Newburgh, and that devastates everything. And wow, you know the older brothers and sisters of the kids in my neighborhood and in that area, they're all going to Vietnam. The other kids are you know riding around with BB guns and and bicycles. It was mad. It was mad. Totally out of control. And so, so your dad. Uh, <laughs> they didn't know what was going. On. They, they were not, parents didn't really know what kids were doing then. But your dad, he didn't start as a playwright. He started as a TV writer. Uh, he, 
he he started as a as a as a no as a nobody. He's one of those people that uh, he's like the best argument for the draft. He's the last seventeen year old to go to Europe for World War Two, mm-hmm. and uh, World War Two saves his life. And how the, so? He was on his way to being a degenerate gambler, junkie, God knows what. Never read a book. Lived grew up in the Bronx. Oh just yeah, a complete failure and he goes out and he sees the world and uh he comes out of world war ii rich from gambling oh really and money changing and you know my father said he goes nothing like a bunch of hillbillies with money in their pocket who think dice are magic (laughs) (laughs) so he's a real street guy huh totally (laughs) and then he lied his way into dartmouth college and became a rock star and became a playwright. Did like six plays while he was there. Ran the newspaper and just totally blew up and just became like invented himself. And, That's uh, crazy. Where's that movie? Oh man, he's done a lot of writing about that. It, it, but it's you, a great but story. from your point of view. Yeah, no, he actually wrote a play called Getting In. Yeah, it was done at EST. It was really uh, when they used to do all the one act plays. It's 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 published. It's a great play. It's about how he lies his way into Dartmouth and cheats his way in, and then. Uh, and then he, he went from there to live TV, and then live TV to Hollywood. So he he had the whole the whole uh, the whole. That's a great story. Oh my God! But he 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 literally covered the entire um, breadth of post-war um, dramatist writing because he he does live t- live TV. Then he comes out to the studio system, and he literally worked out here and did movies, and you know. Didn't the he fastest the- gun, fastest gun alive. He rode, and he worked in the bungalows. You know where your agent would come around and give what you a studio? weekend. Oh, everywhere. Oh, really? He worked for he he worked up the street here for Walt. Yeah. And Walt Disney wanted him to stay for life, and my father broke his heart and said he wouldn't leave. My father wrote, uh, "Oh God." He well, now on. you're working for Disney, so full I circle. I know, I know. They, they've got their <laughs> they got their hooks back in again. But God. he and then he then he and they became a playwright and then an independent movie maker and a director and just a he was a he's a, a, a super vivid independent um uh, and and a great writer and a great dramatist well yeah. didn't he win a pulitzer he did win a pulitzer the subject was roses yeah that's a big deal oh man he was a oh my god when i was growing up my dad was a, at, at that point in time I, he was the president of the dramatist guild and he was oh my god he and was, he started out just a street kid like it, it could have gone either way oh he wasn't going any either way he was going one way he was definitely seriously man he he, he world war Two really his draft notice is the thing that saved his ass huh because yeah. he was always in trouble and just, yeah. He just, he loved to gamble. He yeah. loved to gamble, man. You know those guys that love to gamble. I, yeah, I never understood it. I fucking hate it. I, I can't stand it. I mean, I think unless you, you got to win big to really get the bug. You got to be willing to That's risk. That's not my theory. No? No. Because like, I, I, like if I lose 800 hours over a course of four hours, I'm like, fuck this. I'm done. I'm not going to sit there all night. I don't know. I, you'd have to. Uh, I know you met my brother one time. He said he had a long conversation in with New you. Mexico. Yeah, he. My brother actually. He wrote a movie about Camille that Al Pacino's in. It's not a great movie, but it is a great script. What's it called? It's called uh, Two for the Money. Okay. And uh, there's a there's a couple scenes in there. There's a there's a Gamblers Anonymous scene. There's a couple scenes in there. But I think Danny's theory really is the one. I I think gamblers. There's a reliability that gamblers like. It's like drunks as well. There's a reliability about it. What that you're gonna lose? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, well, yeah, I've heard that one. Yeah. yeah. I kind of... <laughs> it, like, it's consistent. <laughs> it's, uh, it's something you can count on. Yeah, it, I guess that's true. But, you know, I, I don't know that they admit to that. But, you know, from an outsider's point of view, I can see it. And as somebody who's in recovery, I understand that. That, you know, you go with what you know. And if what you know is beating the shit out of yourself one way or the other, and that's what you call home, then that's where you're going to live. 
My father always said that he made more money writing about gambling than he ever lost, so he was ahead. That was his theory, because he made a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. He was the gambling guy in Hollywood for years. I mean, Dick Powell gambling movie. And he, he, my father wrote a movie, uh, wrote a play called The Only Game in Town that was yeah. a huge play, and it was a massive uh, movie, the disastrous movie with Elizabeth Taylor and, and, yeah. and Warren Beatty. It was completely fucked up, but, it, but he... Uh, he the last thing I'll say about it, this, my father would two things. Yeah. When he got, I would come home and he'd be watching TV. He'd be watching harness racing from the Finger Lakes when he didn't even have a bed on the on it, right? <laughs> and the other thing was behind his bed, he had a book. Some yeah. uh, somebody made it rolled dice. Somebody took dice and they rolled them like, you know, forty hundred thousand times. Yeah. And they recorded every roll. Yeah. And then they just put it on a list. So it's a book of a list of <laughs> dice rolls. So my father, when he couldn't sleep pull out the book, open it at random, and just start shooting craps <laughs> in his bed, trying to go back to bed. So I don't know what, I don't have that. <laughs> Good for that, you. I don't have that. But you did, like, it's funny because it is sort of a, a, a deep part of the Clayton character, is that yeah, yeah, a, yeah. A, no, he's a oh, compulsive no. oh, gambler. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be in there. And oh, the other, and the other brother's- I understand a, it. Yeah, and the other brother's a drug addict. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, I understand that more be- better. That's easy, more easy for me to understand. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or what? You sober guy? No, I'm not. No, yeah. no, no. I'm just a continual vice guy. Oh yeah, you yeah, just I've been lucky. It out? I've been the lucky guy. Right, right. So, but, I but never you... completely. I lost my privileges in certain areas, but not. Right, right. But but yeah. I was always no. I was always that. Uh, no, I'm very, very, very lucky that way. I've been able to manage chip since i was 13 yeah. well that's good yeah that's good well i mean you know when you have a sometimes when you have a parent that's out of control you know you 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 are more control you get a little more control i don't know i wonder how related they really are i guess it is the same chemicals but i'm I, it seems that there there is difference how many you got the what do you got two I have two brothers two, two brothers two brothers yeah are they all kind of okay oh my god they're fantastic yeah we yeah it's it's um it's annoyingly idyllic our our relationship. We all work together. We we love each other. We take care of each other. We're you're all we're writers, all, right? My brother Dan is a writer director. My brother John is the editor. Who's right. just done? He's just you know he's one of the greatest editors on the planet. He's edited everything for us. He's on this show with me now. He's done Danny's movie. Did Nightcrawler. He did yeah. everything. He's a so we um my father was um we're very lucky. And what'd your mom do? My mom really was kind of the she kept my father. She was kind of my father's creative partner in many ways. Yeah. And, and just, you know, she's a great sculptor, a per, you know, a, a 19, a post-war woman who could have done anything, who ended up, you know, uh, helping, helping, uh, uh, helping him get his, get his career. Keep his shit together. But, you know, we, they said we grew up in this, this house upstate and, and our lives were, my brothers and I, our lives were very, we kind of had a secret life. I, I didn't really realize this until a couple of years ago. We really had a secret life because we grew up in this sort of big stone house yeah. surrounded by all this shit, man. Yeah. Our neighborhood. Yeah. You know, you had, unfortunately, we were all big and strong and yeah. ready for it. It would have been, but so we would go out in public in our lives at school and whatever else yeah. and our whole thing and we would, we were in it, man, all the way. Yeah. What do you mean? So, just out we there were in it, yeah, man. Whatever it was, ass. yeah, whatever it was. Yeah. Dirt bikes, drugs, girls, whatever yeah. it was, games, football, whatever yeah. it was. We were in the woods with yeah. everybody else. Yeah, 
But in the summer, you know, we'd go to Europe, and on the weekends, we'd go see Broadway, and yeah, yeah. we would go put, you know, to restaurants, right, and right, we yeah. were like hanging yeah. out here and going to Bill Goldman's Christmas party and right. doing these different things, and like, so we had this, but we never talked about it. To, You'd to never the, t- to no. The, to the see, it was literally yeah. I I until until a few years ago, I really didn't realize how bizarre that was. But I was talking to my brother Johnny about yeah. it. We really realized that we just really had like, it was like a secret identity that we all three grew up with. And we, you know, we- Which one? What do you mean? Which which one was the secret identity? <laughs> God, there's a, that's, I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't, but we, oh God. And you know, and we really were plugged in up there. I mean, we all had jobs and you know, Mason's assistant or plumber's apprentice and landscaping or every, you know, yeah, get yeah. jobs and put, sure. you're always working. And, and, and that whole, and I imagine everybody that you were surrounded with would have really, even if you told them what your dad did. Or, they didn't understand, nobody, nothing. man. No, yeah. nobody. Like they'd nothing. be like, what? It's a different. No, it was a really, um, there were a couple, there were a couple of one or two, three, four people that, you know, but it was a very bifurcated. Uh, like, who were your your dad's uh, peers? Like, who were you hanging around with? Who was who he? Friend? Oh my God! I mean, you know, we were just talking the other day. Uh, uh, I mean, I mean, all the Patty Chayefsky and Bob Fosse and oh and, my God. and Bill yeah. Goldman and John Gay yeah, yeah. and you know, I mean, Rod Serling and I mean, his whole the, all that whole generation. He's a player in all that stuff, yeah. and then all the playwrights because he was the president of the Dramatist Guild for a long time. Yeah. So. So all the playwrights of the time. Oh, so you would come into New York and just be in that the world. The highest, the highest, you know, media elite of the yeah. late '60s. Yeah. I mean, I saw when I was a kid. I mean, I saw. I mean, I saw Carol Channing do Hello Dolly. I saw Zero Mostel do Fiddler. Yeah, man. Yeah. I saw Dick Kiley do Man of La Mancha. <laughs> I went to opening nights. I was like 10, 11, 12 years oh, old, and then God. I'd go back, and you know, the <laughs> next to... day I'd be back in. Um, yeah. You know. In it. In it, you know, yeah, you know, guarding your territory. And we weren't faking. We weren't faking no, anything. We no. just didn't talk about what the other thing was. I think that's amazing. So it made you like a fully well-rounded person. I, I mean, to, to take that experience into your craft ultimately has got to be the. It's the greatest I think thing. What, we were trying to look for what was the unifying reason, other than good health and good luck. Yeah, that my brothers and I have managed to. Uh, to be able to stick around and keep going and and work so hard because yeah. you do really work hard and kind of get the thing and and I think and I think also be I think we're all three really good bosses I think we're very we're I think we're we're not so good from above we don't do so well with with bosses but right but we're very good we're very good bosses and I don't know it's I I think some of it comes from we had a very we had a very omnivorous gathering of 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 what people are like and what it's like yeah and, yeah and e- the, economics you as saw well. it all this full yeah, the e- full arc yeah and the economics in our household were you know my father was because he was a gambler there were times where we were really super flush and really hitting it and there were times where he would you know my father be gone and he'd check in in the beverly hills hotel and he couldn't pay his bill and the concierge would put him on the arm for a month until he got a gig you know, it was that kind of shit. Yeah. So was that. Yeah. You really dealt with the inconsistency. Mm-hmm. We of- called it luxurious insecurity. Yes. <laughs> so was it always going to be writing for you? No, I was a rock and roller, man. Oh, really? Totally. What did you play? I was a guitar player. Yeah? Yeah. Still? I play. I don't play out with anybody. I don't do what you do. No. I don't go out and play with anybody. But I, I just but I started play. doing that in my 50s. I was going to do it, and then I saw that Viagra commercial of the guy doing it, and I'm I like, know, fuck I that. I don't want to be that guy. No, that, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go back in the... Um, my fantasy is 
my son's friends have a he's got some friends with some really good musicians and one of them has a studio yeah I, when when I get this thing under control, I've been there. I was doing some writing last year and, and coming. When you up get with some, Star Wars under control, yeah. Next next <laughs> yeah. year when I get when I get this yeah. monkey off my um, yeah. No, when, when it gets under control, I want to go back to the studio more and than jam. play out lot. No, I, I like building. I like building songs in the studio more than jamming. I don't really like jamming. I did so much jamming when I was, you know, in the first twenty years of my life. Well, what was the intent? What kind of band was it? Were you doing originals? Were you doing like what? I oh, mean, I did everything. I started. I started playing out. I started playing out gigs at thirteen. Oh yeah, yeah. At Stewart Air Force Base at the NCO Club. Yeah. Like doing dances and shit. Man, that was. I played in a band. Uh, the first gig I ever played was in at the NCO Club. Yeah. And when it was Stewart Air Force Base. Yeah. The band was called Shades of Soul. Yeah. I was the only white guy in the band. Yeah. I was the bass player. I yeah. was thirteen, and I think we did. I think we need two new two songs. I think we did uh, <laughs> "Slipping Into Darkness" for uh, one one set, and yeah. then we come back and do "Feeling All Right" for the second set. I think it was that kind of a band, right? Yeah, but it was. Really... But I mean, I played everything after that. Then I, you know, and I, I did it really seriously. I, I wanted to be a studio player, and I thought I was going to be a studio musician. And I really thought that so I did had, it really seriously. Pursued it. You had real chops, huh? I could really play. Yeah. I could really play, but I, I could really play. I, I but I was like, kind of a. You know, a presence in Boston, young. What years? Uh, 75, 76, 77. Who was that. around? I mean, that's a big music town. I went to college in Boston. I went to BU. I went to BU for two I years. Yeah, BU, I, yeah, I dropped out of BU to, 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 to play in the clubs up there. So I played that whole circuit. You know, the, it was a great place to be at that time because you could, you know, you, you, you were allowed to play in town once or twice a month. Yeah. And then the other the rest of the time, you'd play all the colleges or ski resorts or whatever. So you, but you could Killington. come in to play. Yeah. That was the rule. You could play Jacks and Oxford yeah. Ale House or Brandies the or channel? Bun Raddies. The channel around you? That's after me. Actually. Oh, yeah. The channel's oh, the after Bun me. Bun Raddies was around? Bun Raddies. I played Bun Raddies many times. Wow. I think it's still around. Someone yeah. told me it might. St- Brandies, Brandies One, Brandies Two. All the clubs. But you could, you could come into town like once or twice a month. And you could make a living, and uh, you could play original music. You could, you know, you'd have three or four sets of covers and stuff, but you'd have a couple sets of, and and everyone was trying to, a couple sets of original music, and everyone was trying to get a deal. It was all yeah. about trying to get a deal. Who was around the bands? You remember at oh, the yeah. time? I mean, like, well, oh, uh, who broke out of there? Because the cars were, we were, we, you know, it was right at one before. point it was kind of like us and the cars, and oh, it was really? like, what was yeah, your band called? That band was called the Night Visitors. Yeah. And uh, and uh, we came very very good, really good band came very very close and and screwed it up royally in a, in a you know a great great useful. you did we did we had a we had a um, we had a we had we put together a band yeah uh, this buddy of mine and I came back to my mother's house spent the summer worked on all the material went back to Boston and we stole the rhythm section from another band from the Road Apples. Uh-huh. Sure. Good band. <laughs> we stole a great rhythm section. Yeah. And uh and we and we had a house, a studio in Arlington, this really sort of little famous house that had this great little four track studio in it. And we re- rehearsed down there. Yeah. We rehearsed up three songs and we got this uh real estate lawyer to come down to hear us and the guy just flipped out and we were really good and they put us in the studio and recorded these three songs and they were really strong. Yeah. And we had Every record company in New York desperate to come. So we were like, well, we've all played out. We've yeah. all been playing out all over the place. Yeah. And we know what we're doing and we're yeah. so good and we can stretch out a set. Sure. But we had never played live. We did not take that band on oh, the road and play live. And I know we this. went to Par- there's a Paradise Club that just opened up. Up on Commonwealth? Yeah. yeah. It just opened. And yeah. we uh we booked a 
very expensive showcase for yeah. all these record companies, and they all came. And we had them spread around the room. Yeah, like they yeah. Like, I know like, that room well. Right, we had them yeah. spread around the tables. Yeah. And it was a whole thing. They all ended up sitting at one table in the middle because they yeah. want to hang out with each other. Sure. And we were just we were we were just not ready to play live. You know, we were all really good musicians, and the songs. Oh were good. my god! And we lost the whole thing in one night. And we kind of never, we didn't we didn't uh, we didn't rally back from that. But uh, but uh, the music from that band is. Uh, uh, Did you record it? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, you did the oh, three a lot songs, of recording. Yeah. No, we did. Oh, we recorded a lot of stuff. Then we recorded. You got it. I have all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, I have all that stuff. Have you listened to it lately? I do. I've, I, the 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 leader of that, the 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 main songwriter yeah. of that, uh, just passed away a few months ago, and and that reignited a whole long uh, re-listening to oh, a lot of wild, different, man. a lot of stuff. Yeah. Did you know? Uh, the, did you ever see the Modern Lovers around? Oh yeah. No, yeah. no. I love Jonathan Richmond. Yeah. I just I talked to Jerry Harrison a few weeks ago. I saw that on the queue, but I didn't. It's I didn't great, put dude. it up. He was in the band. Yeah. No, I know. It was great, and like uh, because. Jonathan apparently is a stonemason now. He's up in Davis making pizza ovens. Oh, that's good to hear. He's happy and everything. he seems like it. He and Jerry has put out a couple records with him. He's married to a woman who's gotten him into, uh, I think, Spanish music. He plays flamenco. He's a very interesting. Guy. That's very pleasing. I never met him. I mean, I mean, I met him, but I never. We weren't friends or anything. But yeah. I saw him play many times, and he's uh, uh, pretty sweet, right? What a strong flavor, too, man. Yeah, yeah. Back then, when it when he was first happening, yeah. You know, now it has context. It didn't have any context back right. then. Oh, you yeah. watch it the first time and you're like, what the fuck is this guy doing? <laughs> yeah. What the fuck is this? Uh, really? Yeah. That's, that's a, you want to have people say that. Sure. So when do you like full, go all in on the writing? How's that happen? Um, was your uh, dad supportive? Oh, yeah, because I was making a living. Yeah. You, know, I was, you know, I was making a living. I didn't really... I called him up and said, hey, man, look, I got my college schedule down to like Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, so I'm gigging all the time, but it's crazy, and I don't want to do this. And he goes, well, if you're making a living, do it. So um, I did it up there. Um, I had my, I sort of had, my fantasies were kind of dashed. I came out to LA when I was 19. Yeah. There was a guy who cherry-picked me from a band that his buddy was in in Boston, saw me play, and said, hey, man, I'm making a record in LA. Yeah. And if you come out, uh, I won't put you on the record, but you can you can be in my road band. I'm going to go on the road. He's making this big record with Richard Perry, this half a million dollar fucking record yeah. back in 19... This huge Who's record. this guy? Well, that's a fucking tragic story. He, his name was Bill Schwartz. His name was Bill Black, but he called... Uh, Bill Schwartz, but his name was Bill Black. It yeah. was for uh, Playboy Records, Rocket Records. Yeah. And Richard Perry's producing his album. I come out to LA... And I go to these sessions, and I think I'm a real hot shit player. Yeah. And I go out, and there's Richie Zito, and there's a band from Little Feet. There's there's oh. Richie Hayward, and, yeah. and 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 Paul Barrera. And then one night I go, and it's Nigel Olson and Dee Murray and Davy Johnson backing him up. Yeah. And I'm sitting in the studio. I'm going Elton's like, band. Yeah, I'm going yeah. like, oh my god. <laughs> I it was I didn't even. It wasn't like they put me in the game, and I realized how 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 much I how far behind it was. Just watching them I was like, that is not me. I'm not. And so um, I was waiting to be in his road band, and uh, I was going to do that, and it was going to be fun. I was learning the songs. Yeah. Finishes his album. The day they mastered his album, he went up to the riot house and killed himself. Jesus Christ. And up uh, to the Hyatt? Yeah. Jumped yeah. off? No, or he no? OD'd on purpose. Wow. Yeah. And it was, I mean, I was 19. I was out here selling toner. You yeah, know, living, doing that. I couldn't even go out and drink. I'd already. Been, I was a bartender when I was like 15 in New York. I was like, yeah. I'd been in clubs in LA. I couldn't even go to a bar at that point. I'm at, at 19, oh, so and I was like, really, it was very disorienting. Uh, I had this whole master plan, and I ended up going back to Boston, 
put that other band together. We came very, very close. I started writing songs. I got into writing lyrics. Yeah. And I was doing too many drugs and yeah. didn't like that. And I had a house that burned down. And I ended up moving back to my parents' house. Uh, in Washington. I, in Washingtonville, yeah. yeah. And I started writing short stories. And that kind of started doing that. And then for about four or five years, I kind of, or three or four years, I did both. I tried to do both things. And then I really made a very brave decision. And uh, um, I had a band of my own in New York. I got yeah. moved to New York and I had a band of my own. It was a bad time for music. Um, I was starting to see the limitations of what was going to happen for me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I can see how I'm like, I'm not going to be as good as I want to be. Right. And uh, maybe I'm better at this other thing. That's tough. It was very, it's one of the bravest things I ever did. So I stopped playing and I wouldn't pick up the phone and I wouldn't, I do, used to do singing dates. I yeah. wouldn't do singing anymore or anything. And I tended bar for five years. It's like a, it's like five man, six years managed heartbreak. It it only was when I would go to clubs. If yeah. I would go see friends play, yeah, then it would hurt. But you had to commit to it in order to you know just to what to honor yourself. Or? I you know Costello killed me really. Yeah. Uh, you know Elvis. I was such a huge Elvis fan at that point, and I like I was like man, I I'm not gonna be that good. Yeah. I can't do that. Ugh. And I'm going to be like, I'll be like the great road guitar player or right. the, the, who can sing high and the, the guy keyboard who people parts. know. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, but you know, I'd be that guy. Be, yeah, just other bands. That guy. Yeah, or, yeah. or maybe I might be the kind of record producer who's not a musician, like the, oh, the yeah, you yeah. know, the smart guy. Right, right. But I was like, man, I don't know. And so I just, I ended up attending bar for five years. So, had, so it's that moment of, of realizing your limitations. And, yeah, order, but who, I mean, I, I look back now and I go like, I, I don't know if I'm capable of making that kind of mature decision now, so I don't know how I did it then. Well, I mean, because I think sometimes the fear of what you're, if you can really see that your life as it unfolds, honestly, is going to be a, a fucking travesty or painful. I mean, it's a rare gift. I mean, I saw it happen to me with this podcast. Oh, I know. I was going to say, there's great parallels here. Yeah. You did it a little later than I did. Right. <laughs> but but it, it's a gift, but it's a hard one to accept. You know, to, to be able to have that foresight. Yeah. And um, I don't think I thought I was going to be tending bar for that long. I think I thought I would get over rather quickly, but it uh, it took a lot longer to figure out how to be a screenwriter than I thought. And what, did, was your dad helpful? In what way? Anyway. Well, yeah. He was always... I mean, he just... Did you, give well, him, he, did you show him shit? Uh, yeah, but it was more... Uh, his attitude was... His attitude was the annoying attitude, you know, this is the best, tending bar is the, great, the greatest thing that's ever going to happen to you, and everything you're doing now, you're <laughs> learning, everything you're learning now is going to, you know, and when you're in year five and you just, you're, you're so disgusted with people after you've been serving 9,000, you know, you yeah. just, when you're dealing with the public that hard, mm. that long, I was a, by the end of it, I could only work at the service bar, I was like a machine. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and when someone's telling you, man, this is the greatest years of your life and you're learning everything. You, My father was such an optimist and you, yeah. you're learning everything you need to know and all this stuff you're getting and all this material, you don't even realize what you're absorbing. It's fantastic and how to be. And you're going like, fuck you, dude. I just want to get out of here. He was right, but um, it, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't go down well. It's not great to hear that when you fucking had enough he, of he, it. Nothing made him happier. At one point, my brother John was attending bar at Cafe Yon du Trois, yeah. and I was at O'Neill's 43rd Street and he yeah. could literally go have a drink with him he could go visit Manny Eisenberg do some shit he could go have a drink with Johnny walk yeah. through the parking lot and come have a drink with me and like he was in heaven 
<laughs> my boys. I know. Well, but like, cr- there's nothing glamorous about this. Yeah. yeah. That's so funny. I know. So, so when was the big break with the, for uh, screenwriting? The big break was um, uh, a friend of a friend. I wrote a bunch of scripts and, and, you know, and people would read them. And I did have, you know, I had access to have people read stuff, but it doesn't really, uh, it didn't really, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta do it badly for a while. Yeah. And uh, like everything. And yeah. um, what happened? Uh, a friend of a friend uh, had some, knew somebody who worked at New Line. And New Line was like nine people above the Port Authority at that point. Yeah. And this guy read this script and he's like, man, I like this script, but I'm trying to do this other thing and help me out. And I really liked him and I liked his idea and he, he's been a friend forever. And he was Sam Cohn's son. And through him, we ended up writing, I don't remember, Canon Pictures? Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, so Canon, Go- we wrote- Globulus and Globus? Yeah, we wrote, uh, <laughs> we, we, tried, we wrote a movie that never got made for Chuck Norris called Cupid O'Malley. We yeah, wrote it together. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I quit tending bar off that that half a Writers Guild check. Yeah. That was wow. my big break. Canon Pictures. I had a new friend. I got, I had two, like Jim Taylor, the guy who used to write with, uh, you yeah. know Jim? Yeah. He used to write with uh, yeah, Payne, Alexander yeah, Payne. Yeah, yeah. He worked at Canon, and I had another friend from I grew up with who was over there too. Yeah. I remember going over there and just being like, what are they doing over here? Cupid O'Malley, as dead as they get. Well, they used to take those things in variety where they'd put all those ads. Yeah. There'd be like a thousand ads of movies that don't exist. Yeah, you know? oh, yeah, then, right, right. It was a real racket. Yeah. So that was it. And, that, and, and that then, t- I, then, I, then I eked in from there, and I just, you know, and I got a couple things, and then finally... You know, finally I got a movie made, the the cutting edge. I got the the skating movie made. Yeah, and then it's and then it's just then a, you just, you just, just kept going. going. Yeah, just keep going. So what now? But but I guess the in terms of who you are now in this world, it it was sort of built on the born thing, right? Man, I don't know. I don't think of it that way. No, but I mean, in terms of like you know, people wanting you, like you don't get to Star Wars, do you necessarily? I mean, that? I was like, you know, I became um, I I got legit off a movie called uh, Dolores Claiborne. That, right. That made me legit, and and I was a woman's writer then for a yeah. couple of years. That's what everybody wanted me to do. But I I I was pretty uh, I I became a pretty, you know, a pretty reliable. Uh, uh, you know, provider of shootable scenes and and in, fixable in ter- stories in hot in this town for a long time before that. So, but uh, but so you would they would send you scripts. Man, and- I, we were making uh, Taylor and I were making Proof of Life with uh, that's a huge movie with Russell Crowe and Meg yeah. Ryan. We were making. I mean, I only I did I think six weeks on Born in the middle before I was on my on the on the road with. Um, with uh, I, I wrote Born in a small gap I had on a break in making Proof of Life, so I was I was in the I was I was a player at that point at yeah, least yeah. in terms of being a screenwriter on on demand, you know. Well, and, I mean, dude, none of this influence because it's funny to me that there, on some level you were kind of a fixer like Clayton, but it didn't it, you were you didn't and uh, not really at that point. I mean, uh, yeah. I had done some rewrites at that point, but um, I bought a house. Yeah, we bought a house in uh, off uh, off Devil's Advocate, and then. We couldn't. We got. We we bought it, and then we realized that we did. We couldn't afford to fix it up. So I spent one whole year. I went to work for Jerry Bruckheimer for one year, and that's where I became a fixer. So I went to work on Armageddon, and Enemy of the State, and Bad Boys, and Coyote Ugly, and Gone in Sixty. I mean, there wasn't anything oh there. God. Like I just the whole year. We call it the house that Jerry built because yeah. I just I just worked for Jerry all year. And do you when you. As that guy, what is is there a general problem that always exists with screenplays that need help? Is or is it just one story to story? No, it's pretty. It's usually pretty. Uh, 
I don't know if there's a universal truth. If there's a universal truth, it's that it's that um, people ignore the purity of things. You know, they don't get into the purity of what the story really is about. They haven't found out what the movie really is about. And then, you know, there's a whole bunch of tells in scripts. You know, if you see characters and their IQs go up and down scene to scene, and you yeah. see, you know, people, there's it's a lack of reality. Right. Really, it's always a lack of reality. It's a lack of rigor and a of lack honesty of, and character. Yeah, just yeah, make it. It doesn't matter if it's trolls or yeah, or or talking trees or <laughs> or if it's Ken Loach. It doesn't matter. It always wants to be real. And, yeah, and and that's the that's what we try to. That's the thing you try to bring. Yeah, credibility. Right, credibility in all things. Yeah, have you have you have you do you have any movie regrets of yours? What do you mean? Like m- movies that you wrote and you're like, oof, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen some and movies I didn't have you know that's why I became a also because I become a director because you, you at least once I was like well at least once I want to I want to I either want to yeah. go down in flames yeah. or I want to see one that looks exactly like I want it to look so you, yeah right exact full control just one at least one yeah so this like so now the the Rogue One story which I you know I I had to sort of research and like I'm not a Star Wars guy particularly right but it seems like an, an amazing. T- it feels like you you somehow saved the franchise. They they were gambling, right? They couldn't fail, right? What on Rogue? Yeah, yeah. I, it's a subject that doesn't really benefit me to do that much talking about. Right, sure. I could say, uh, well, I sort of say what I said before. Not and just also just because it just it just the Star Wars community and the people that now chew up making of stuff it's yeah. become its own industry it was a it was um it was for me it was an absolutely extraordinary experience yeah it was something that was in trouble and the scope of work got larger and larger as it went along and it took everybody that it took to get it done and yeah it, it shouldn't be good yeah it shouldn't have worked yeah it was such an enormous gamble on the part of the studio and everybody else and it was a miraculous win, yeah. And all the right things that needed to happen happened, and so it's kind of it's really was super exciting to be on it. I learned a ton on it. Um, what did you learn specifically? How to manage something that huge? Yeah, and also oh, there's some things I I mean you know, uh, <laughs> I learned I learned how you can uh, I learned how you can oh boy I got to be really careful. You can learn how you can make things without prep. You know, you can, uh-huh. it was a different kind of a seat of the pants, making yeah. things. I was very, I'm very prep oriented and like to be very organized. And right. This was very much, um, this was, this was a 10 month, you know, sprint to the top of Everest. Really? Yeah. It was very exciting. Huh. But then when it was done, everybody's very excited. You know, yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. High, and it's, you know, it's great to win. Yeah. Winning is good. But did you, when you finished Rogue One, did you think that was going to be it? Yeah. I didn't think I would do any more of that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Think, yeah. No. But you, so like in terms of that skill set, I mean, are you going, I mean, well, I guess you, you've got this, you know, I mean, this thing's a big deal. The thing you're doing now, this Andor, I mean, that, I mean, that's going to take up a lot of space. It's five years of my life. <sighs> three years tonight. Tonight we're going to show it for the first time and it'd be three years I've been on this. So when they brought it to you, I mean, how did they turn you around on doing it? What was the original pitch? She, uh, Kathy Kennedy, they they wanted to do a prequel of the. I don't know of if you ever seen Rogue One. Yeah, yeah, Everybody yeah. dies, you know, yeah. so, and so. But uh, uh, Diego Luna is just not just a, a great guy; he's a great actor. Yeah, and and 
writing that part, there was some really some really interesting things about him, but you don't really know that much about it. It's not a story about backstory. Right. Um, they said, we want to do a prequel of him taking up to the, taking him up to the movie. He said, well, yeah. well, you know, okay. And when they first came, some of my job, some of my relationships are friend in court. People call you up and they ask you for advice. Right. Or, what do you think about this? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. So it was kind of in that, in that bit of a wardrobe. And, and, uh, they tried a couple things and she sent me these. Also, there was no economics for streaming right. at that point. Yeah. There was no, no one was spending hundreds of millions of dollars on television shows sure. at that point. And you were like, how are you going to do that? Yeah. And they had a couple things that they tried. And, and along the way, one of them she sent me and I, and I, and I, I don't know, in some manic morning at the computer yeah. because I said okay here here's what you here's what here's what here's either doesn't work and here's what you should do yeah. and it was this crazy freaking manifesto and send it off and they're like well that's a little bit much for us we're going to try the other thing and fine that's fantastic it wasn't yeah. a job application right, at all right, it was right. really like so you're just coughing up kind, and yeah you know I do, yeah. I do that for people yeah. I do that because yeah. I really love I mean the way that you know I just really love stories and yeah. breaking them apart and yeah. so you know so the other one you. flamed out and then yeah. they came back and they were like we found the memo and we read the memo and now we want to do that <laughs> and now we have the money and then even still it was still a long tiptoe yeah. forward into it but um but it was originally conceived as a film right no 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 it was, it was always, always going to be, be this okay. thing but okay. then uh but now there was you know all of a sudden they come back and now there's money for streaming and it's and now it's not so uh unfeasible that you could make something on yeah. scale and I love Diego, and I love this idea. And all of a sudden, and I had a bunch of movies shot out from under me. Yeah, you know, I had a couple of real, you know, because I mean, Show most business. of what I've ever written has not been made. That's I mean, crazy. I mean, it's the truth. It's a, su a successful just, screenwriter's life is most of it's not made. And that's something you accept. You don't. You don't have like. Are you? Do you? I, I, you have to. I but guess. Let's define accept. How many things have, are you accepting <laughs> right now? I mean, really, right? Well, you know, I mean, it's humbling, dude. It's humbling. Is, we should it's be like Eskimos. We should have like nine words for acceptance, I that, think. That's true. Or German, yeah. Yeah. But, but... Uh, accept, no, accept, yes, but... But it's it's sort of that, that same moment of, of realizing you're not going to be a musician anymore. There's a different variation of that in, in accepting that something... Okay, but... Yes, but I, I I had a couple I had a couple very important projects for me that got shot down. I was feeling a little bit bitter about that. Yeah, and um, I wasn't getting any younger. Yeah, and uh, all of a sudden they're putting this thing down, and I have a very hot idea for it. I have yeah. a really and 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 you know it's for me it's like I sketch. I'm a big sketcher, and yeah. I go and and if it's if something's soft and accepting, it just every time you touch it, it gives way. It does something that you want to do, and you come yeah. back at four o'clock in the afternoon, you work for an hour. Oh fuck, there's another good yeah. idea, and it's like, man, you, you sometimes you even try to push things away, and you come back two days later, and it's like, oh wow, look at this, and they yeah. just they give, yeah, and this thing just kept giving, yeah, and then, man, uh, you know, it's just this chance of a life this canvas i mean i'm what i'm getting to do right now i'm not slumming man yeah i am not slumming yeah i, I don't know if you'll ever watch my show because i know the the title of you know the rest of i'm gonna i'm gonna i gotta you're gonna, gonna be get proud of me you're gonna be i think so it's <laughs> i'm writing as hard and as high and as hot and as and as complicated as anything i've ever done but i get to use this um i get to use this odd uh you know Organism, this yeah. host organism, this body. Um, you mean the Star Wars? Yeah, universe. the frame, yeah. and I have a canonical framework that yeah. I stick in this five-year yeah. period that I can, I can both use and 
I can pervert in a really yeah. interesting way. But I also, it's literally like, I'm not saying I'm writing War and Peace, but I have the chance to have something of that scale. I have, I get to write about the five-year period where this major revolution is going to coalesce and this fascist uh uh, uh, fascist uh, imperial power yeah. is doing everything it can to crush it, and I have carte blanche in that. I have, uh, we did twelve hours. I have a hundred and ninety speaking parts in the twelve hours. Oh my god! I'm writing for the we're, we're writing for the greatest actors yeah. on the planet, we're, and every scene that we write, every scene that I write, gets shot. <laughs> it's amazing. So I'm in great. Sh you get in gr great shape. You get used to it. I mean, it's just, it's been, there's been many, many times, if you dropped the needle along the last three yeah. years, at the wrong time, you would have been, you know, get me the fuck out of here. Right. What have I done? I ruined yeah. my life. Um, but in the end, um, like tonight, we're going to show the first three episodes on a big screen, and I'm proud to show them. That's great. Yeah, so and that's I, and, cool. And so, what this five-year idea? The, the, you, this is a finite. You, they wanted to do the original idea was to do five years, and then we had no idea what we were doing. And yeah. By the time we finished the twelve episodes, it's just I think when people see the full twelve, it'll go on through Thanksgiving. I think when people see the scale and the abundance of what we've done, they they'll be like, I mean, our we were just our heads were exploding a year and a half ago. Yeah. Diego and I were up in Scotland. I was like. We sat down over a drink, and it's like, man, we can't do five years. We'll, your your face won't go that long. It'll take sixty years to do it. We'll be dead. Yeah. What do we do? So there was a very elegant solution. So we're going to do twelve more. We start shooting in November. So the first the first twelve episodes take place over one year, yeah. which is sort of his taking him from being taking this character from being a complete loser and nowhere, just an absolute nobody, yeah. and turning him into a revolutionary over yeah. 12 hours. Uh -huh. And then the second 12 episodes will be over the next four years, walking him into the movie of the rebellion and as the, re as the revolution coalesces and all the, I mean, I get to use everything I ever studied about every revolution I ever read about. It's very, it's the, the breadth of the material that we can deal with and the amount of stories I yeah. can tell and the intricacy that yeah. I can build. I've, I mean, it's very exciting to work on a canvas. This, It's almost like I've been a short story it's writer. It's like a symphony. Well, yeah, it's almost like you've been a short story writer your whole life long yeah. and now you're writing a novel. It's really what it's like. And, but it's it's also like this is stuff, this is what, this is the, the struggle of, of humanity. Oh, yeah. And I don't, right? and, I, and, and plus you're not pinned down by the politics of the day. Right. I don't, no one's ever going. You mean you know? Wait, so, fa you know, fascism's timeless. Uh, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and fear is timeless, and anxieties yeah. and betrayal is timeless, and 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 norm. It's all about. It's also not about like the royal family. It's not. Right. We don't have any Jedi. We right. don't have any lightsabers. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. Yeah. It's literally a bunch of people, who are what's happening. It's like. It, it could be called the winds of war if sure, you wanted to. Sure. If it hadn't, the title hadn't been taken, you could call it the winds of war. It's a bunch of people as what happens when revolution comes to your town. Yeah. What happens when your neighbor does this? What happens when they come and ruin everything? How do you, what are the, what are the various ways that you become uh, politicized or beaten? Right. You know, it's a very. Uh, so this has been like, this is like this, uh, you've, it's almost like you've worked towards this your whole life, this exploration of humanity on so many different levels and so many it different characters. I, I use everything I, ha I know almost every day. Yeah. That's the, 
that's and that's this whole show running job and the whole thing is like I I first time right show running yeah 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 as I say first time last time caller <laughs> <laughs> one yeah. and done no I got to, no but but big uh, job it's yeah man oh my god on something like this yeah so, but it's that's the that's great man yeah it sounds no, great. No, like you good. sold me like <laughs> no you're gonna no I you know it's um. I, I really wondered, honest to God, if it was worth it for a long time. I don't feel that way anymore at all. I really feel like it's really been worth it. And are you able to think about anything else or future no, projects or no? No, 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 I don't do that. No, I mean I'm. I know that I have excitement to think about other things. Like I but sort of look at like next spring. I, I haven't had a. It, it's man, it's like working on a dairy farm. Yeah, because it just never ends. And we we're the selling now. But my bigger anxiety is not even the screening tonight or how we're going to be received. My bigger yeah. anxiety is like I start shooting in, in in November and I don't have all my scripts ready. You know, right? That's my bigger anxiety. Now, in the, like in in some other kind of future, are there projects that you've got on the shelf that you really want to see through? That you know, in, in the back of your head. Um, you know, some of them die because they the the timing is wrong or yeah. that the, the, they're not past the moment or I don't know. I always like I don't know what I'll do. Yeah, I, I like the. I, I'm excited about the idea that like, oh, next April while they're finishing shooting, I'll have done that and I'll just be doing post. And, yeah. And then I can start to, I can start to fall in love with some, uh, some, some new thing. Yeah. Music. It's music time. Maybe so, man. Maybe so. <laughs> it's time, dude. You got to yeah. get Maybe the band so. together. Oh, God. Yeah. God. Oh, God. My wife would love to hear that. Oh, my God. That's where she came in. <laughs> Full circle, baby. I'm baby. back in the band. Here. We're done with Ritz. That's it. <laughs> Good talking to you, man. Thanks. Yeah, what a doing. pleasure. There you have it, man. That was a lively chat. Uh, again, uh, his Star Wars series Andor is streaming now on Disney Plus. And if you want some more Michael Clayton talk, we've got some for you. All right, so hang out a minute, and I will tell you about it. I'll tell you about it. More Michael Clayton. Seriously, hang out. Okay, so Brendan and myself, me and Brendan, um, we just got into it. We got in. We you know we got into the Michael. We went almost scene for scene for in the Michael Clayton movie. We did uh, a total deep dive. Had a big conversation, and uh, this is what that sounds like. This is another thing. This is the other thing that michael can't control like the, the the fixer can't fix this he's had experience fixing it before they've clearly have a history with this he knows this guy he loves this guy it's about you know why aren't you taking your pills you know people who have those people in their life know that thing you know he's basically this is like another sort of like he, he feels that he can fix this. He should be able to fix this. He should be able to talk reason to his friend. Well, and it's because it's a person with agency, right? That's what everything that, and, and, and Clayton realizes this by the end of the movie, that every act of him intervening and fixing something is because people have surrendered to him. Right. That's what he has to get that guy to do in his kitchen in the middle of the night. Right. Surrender your bullshit. Stop trying to figure out what the fog lights were like and everything. Yeah. Just surrender and listen to what I'm doing. Yeah. 
Tom Wilkinson will not surrender. <laughs> Arthur Edens is like, the last thing you want to do is make this so that we wind up in court. You do not want to see me in court. That's he right. says. To what is it? Do you think you've got the horses for that? Oh, that's a great. That's a great sequence. Yeah, where he's with the first bread. of all, he's encounter encounters him on his on the street. Arthur has like twelve twenty loaves yeah, of bread. bread. <laughs> it's so good. You want a piece? <laughs> It's such a it's such a great detail. It's like something your dad would have done. Like, oh, I got to get twenty of these. Yeah, yeah, he's going back to a loft with no one else. He's yeah. just going to have twenty yeah, loaves he's of just bread. So excited about the fresh bread! It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, he tells him, you know, with, in no uncertain terms, you're working for the bad guys, basically. Yeah. You yeah. know, like, like you know, Michael Clayton says, I'm not your enemy. And he says, well, who are you then? <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> That's a fucking great line. So there you go. That's me and Brendan jamming mental. The We had the uh, the revelation mental jam on Michael Clayton. That's available for all Full Marin subscribers tomorrow. Go to the link in the episode description if you're not already subscribed or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF+. Plus. On Thursday, I talked to Jan Wenner. He's the guy who created, uh, published Rolling Stone magazine. And as I said earlier, I'm in Livermore, California at the Bankhead Theater on Thursday, October 6th and Carmel-by-the-Sea, California at Sunset Center on Friday, October 7th. In London, I'll be doing a live WTF at the Bloomsbury Theater on Wednesday, October 19th with comedian and writer David Badil. Tickets for that are on sale now. I've got stand-up shows at the Bloomsbury on Saturday and Sunday, October 22nd and 23rd. I don't know what availability is for those. Dublin, Ireland, I'm at Vicker Street on Wednesday, October 26th. Then in November, I'm in Oklahoma City, Dallas, San Antonio, Houston. Go try to get San Antonio tickets. It's a small place, and I added a show, so do that now. Long Beach, California available. Eugene, Oregon, Bend, Oregon. In December, I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. Second show added there at the Orange Peel, I believe. Get those if you want to go. And Nashville, Tennessee. And finally, my HBO special taping is at Town Hall in New York City on Thursday, December 8th. Go to WTFpod.com slash tour for all dates and ticket info. I'll play us out.
lives. Monkey and La Fonda, cat angels everywhere.